And I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach. Instead of seeing the church as an obstacle to disciple making, as an obstacle to movement, I felt the Lord tell me that he wanted me to sit there and see the church as hubs for disciple making movements. Thanks for joining us for Exponential Next's first podcast series, Snapshots of Innovation. I am Carrie Williams, the Executive Director of Exponential Next, and I am so thankful that you're joining us for our very first series filled with engaging conversations that I believe will inspire you to innovate. I know they have done that for me. In this six-part series, John West, our Next Ventures Director, interviews an exclusive group of pioneers, pastors, and ministry leaders who are creatively innovating to make disciples, plant churches, and reach the lost. The 11 ministries featured in this series participated in our most recent Next Ventures annual Shark Tank event. I pray this series will spark creative ideas for your ministry context and provide encouragement for the new ways God is working in North America and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Shane Boyd, Director and CEO of Gathering of Nomads, one of 11 innovative ministries invited to our recent Shark Tank event in Raleigh, North Carolina. Shane, what's going on, man? Good to have you. Hey, thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Yeah, welcome to the to the podcast. I, uh, I know our paths crossed a little bit on social media and Zoom over the last year, uh, but it was super fun to finally meet you in person, to connect. I'm excited for this conversation to learn more about this group of people that often get overlooked. So, man, start us off and just give us kind of the 60-second description of Gathering of Nomads, and then we're going to go back and kind of unpack your journey a little bit. Yeah. Well, Gathering of Nomads is essentially it's a nationwide network of uh, domestic missionaries who currently live like nomads in RVs, buses, and vans. Um, and, and really the function of gathering nomads, it operates like a church that's essentially always mobile. And so the growth of the network is built like church, like a church planting network. But instead of planting churches, we focus on planting people. And what we do is we call those people chapters instead of churches. So there's no confusion. And each look different, just like every church looks different. And each chapter has a mission, a vision and goals that are set out to live and, and make disciples on mission. And, and our team in ministry meditates on basically three scriptures, Matthew 6, 33, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and Acts 1, 8. And it's essentially just this functioning network that is always changing and it's always molding and shaping, um, but it's always focusing on the kingdom. So it's super exciting. Uh, we're only about a year old right now and uh, and growing way faster than we thought. <laughs> nice, man. Yeah. So right now... Even kind of on this podcast, you're in an RV, you're traveling around the country, uh, meeting new people, starting these new chapters. And uh, my my guess would be when you started in ministry, you didn't say, you know what, I think I'm going to sell all my possessions, give to the poor, buy an RV and start traveling around the country. That would be my guess. So <laughs> I know we've talked a little bit, uh, kind of give me, give me sort of the background of ministry. Tell us a little bit about your family, how you kind of got called into ministry in the first place. Yeah, man. I mean, I was not raised in your traditional Christian home. Uh, my parents went to church. Uh, they were kind of priesters, but like maybe past priesters. Uh, priesters are the Christian Easter attendance uh, folk. And so I wasn't really raised in the church. My experience was to 
kind of sit down and be quiet and, um, you know, and doodle on the tithes and offering envelopes. That's kind of what my childhood experience with church was. And so what ended up happening is later on in life, about 18 years old, I uh, was in a car club uh, made of old school Volkswagens, love old school Volkswagens. Um, anyways, and there's this dude that loved Jesus, um, brought me to church, kind of suckered me into a church through a car show, uh, met a bunch of other Christians. After getting saved, uh, I wanted to kind of do a revamp of friends and uh, met my wife on Facebook or sorry, MySpace during that process. MySpace Ooh, my is an space. older my social space. media platform. Uh, and essentially, uh, you know, in that process, just made a lot of new friends, just, you know, kind of getting rid of the old friends, old circle of influence. Um, and then after getting married in 2010, uh, serving on our local church board, serving in youth ministry, volunteering um, as a youth pastor or youth leader at that point. Then I was called into full-time ministry in 2012 and uh, served in all sorts of areas since then. Uh, my favorites have been assistant youth pastor, youth pastor. I was a DYP district youth president for uh, Pacific Southwest of the Wesleyan Church, uh, cohort leader, senior pastor. But there's been a lot of other just fun roles in serving. Um, and there's nothing been greater than right now than currently running this network of leaders and disciple makers. Nice. It's, nice. it's been fascinating um, that I've taken all that experience and to see where God is using all these different gift mixes, um, you know, to serve him in this new, unique way. All right, man. So there's always these pivotal moments in ministry uh, along the way where you, you, you know, you uncover something, God speaks to you in a, in a specific way, you receive a new calling. Tell me, what was it? Was there anything specific, I guess, that caused you to say, hey, you know what, this type of kind of established church ministry is good, but I feel called, you know, to travel, to reach people that don't know the gospel in some of these RV communities. Like what, what was the spark that pushed you in this direction? Yeah, it was kind of a mix. You know, I always, I always think of the Abraham Isaac, um, you know, interaction with Jesus and with God and specifically just the luring effect that God has um, and seeking out obedience in his people. And so specifically for us, you know, my, my wife and I, um, we knew we were sacrificing a lot to be in the position of ministry that we're serving at as a lead pastor. And um, what we realized that we were, we were really sacrificing a lot of our, our family time and our kids. And so, uh, so since getting called in that full-time ministry, my wife has always worked that full-time job to allow us to afford to live. And, and as for many pastors, ministry doesn't pay well, right? That's kind of the kind of the nature of it. Um, but as as for how we moved from an established congregation to where we're at today, God did all of it. I mean, we I, I couldn't have said, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, I would have thought myself was crazy. And so God had a lot of a lot of moving parts in this. But while we were passing that local church in Northern California, uh, we had sold our house to move closer to the church we were pastoring. But California is a little expensive. We couldn't afford to actually live in the city that we were pastoring in. And so we decided to sell our house and buy what we could afford, which was a, an RV. And so we got this RV settled for a, a 45 foot, fairly nice, uh, glamorous uh, trailer, but it's all what we could afford in the city. And what ended up happening during this process is we, we, uh, we started to travel a little bit on the weeks, on the weeks that we weren't working. Um, and ended up falling in love with this community. We met people that were full-timing, and I had no idea how many there were. Saw a couple people on social media, you know, nothing crazy, but we kind of just knew that there were some people, and they were probably just, you know, trying to make money on the road. For us, we fell in love with all these people. I mean, hundreds, thousands of people met within a matter of months, and they had no church. And essentially, we found this community that I would say has zero zip code. I mean, there is no zip code. Hmm. And... 
and we begin to answer the, ask this question, how do we, how do we plan a church in a community without a zip code? And so we just kind of started asking questions. We were still pastoring at the time. And so answering that question, then came out this conversation of how would we do it? We'd have to raise up leaders and people because we're always moving and changing. And if there was enough people, they'd be always getting some sort of church. And so that's kind of the the progression point. But again, I, I don't know if I could have just said, hey, we're selling everything and we're going to go be missionaries on the road. I mean, it just kind of was this slow roll of God showing us what the need was and and being able to then kind of fulfill that need. Okay, got you. So so kind of the move, the transition and moving, selling your house and that opened up this brand new community. Like when you bought an RV, you started to realize, wow, there's a lot of people uh, not only living this way, but also traveling. And then you were just obedient, I guess, just to follow the breadcrumb, so to speak, <laughs> and say, okay, Lord, where do we go next? What do we do next? And eventually that led to, you know, resigning your position, doing this full time. So, um, so tell me, do you have a specific like circuit you travel? Is it a different adventure every week? Tell us a little bit, like, where are you at right now? And where are some of the geographical areas uh, you've been so far in this ministry? Yeah. So currently, you know, it's wintertime for us. And so we're actually down on the Florida Keys. Um, there are thousands of RVers down here. I, I don't even know the real number, um, but Florida, Texas, and Arizona are the biggest states to go to in the winter. They're just warmer. And so if you think about how birds travel, uh, you think about snowbirds, right? They're traveling south for the winter. They're they're heading back north once it gets hot. And so, so for us, we're kind of in that same thing. So necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily a circuit, but, but we are traveling and being intentional with the masses, right? It's the nature of the ministry. Uh, we're not trying to live out the cold in an RV. Um, and we're not trying to sweat too much while, uh, while it's summertime. So we're, we're chasing the weather, if you will. Um, and that's because of the nature of the ministry. And Mm -hmm. so, so for us, you know, there's, we, we do have a schedule. Uh, so our adventures are different every week. Um, every place, every people, every group of people is different. And so, um, you know, as far as having the established lifestyle, most nomads in our ministry is just focused on community. And so we've learned that as we travel with the majority, um, our reach, as far as our ministry goes, is maximized. And, and that's kind of our training process as well. It doesn't mean that we can't have those adventurous moments where we go off out into the desert or out onto the beach or whatever that may look like, but we want to travel with the masses. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this community because I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm not a huge outdoorsman. I don't travel a ton with the RV lifestyle, even camping and that kind of thing. Um, I I've tried glamping, which evidently is kind of coming on the scene. Um, but yeah, tell me about the, the community we're talking about here. How big is it? Are there a lot of people that are living this kind of lifestyle, uh, you were sharing some statistics, even at our Shark Tank event, I found fascinating. So just share with our listeners a little bit about what the statistics are saying and how big this community is. Yeah, one of the recent studies currently uh, that there is there's about 10 million or more people that are living full time in RVs, vans and buses just in the United States. That's a ton of people. Wow. Um, you know, moving into a community, just thinking about the statistics, you know, if you're going to move into a neighborhood. Uh, you can look to see how many people are there. You can usually see what the age range is, um, the average income. And so in the RV world, it's it's even even crazier um, because some people go to nicer places because they can afford it or they go to lower income places because it's a little cheaper. And so it all kind of depends. And we've met we've met multimillionaires on the road and we've met the poorest of the poor on the road. 
And so it's been fascinating to be able to kind of see um, and bridge those gaps and the fact that we're all just living in an RV and that we can all sit around a campfire and break bread. And so that's been, I would say that has been by far one of the best um, things happening. Uh, but as far as some of the, some, some of the stats, it's wild, John. I, it, before and during COVID, there was definitely this explosion of people that started living this lifestyle. You know, people were working from home. And so it just made sense. Hey, if I'm going to work from home, I might as well take my home on the road and I can go travel while I'm working. And so it just made sense for a lot of people. Now, a lot of people had been, had been called back into work, but, but for whatever reason, the community continues to grow. And so just um, from 2020 to 2021, there was a 192% increase in campsite reservations, and then it increased 220% from 2020 to 2022. Like that's, that's crazy growth. I mean, there's RV parks that cannot keep an open spot because they're always booked. Um, I thought this number was pretty fascinating to me because I kind of fall. I mean, I might not be in this category anymore, so I'm just saying this. But 22% of RV ownership is comprised of 18 to 34-year-olds. Mm-hmm. 22%. I mean, you think about usually thinking about RVers, it's not just retired folk. I mean, 18 to 34-year-olds, I mean, that's young families, Yeah. right? And so um, that's pretty wild. I would say the another statistic that was... Um, was bonkers to me is that just in the last 20 years, uh, there's been a 70% increase in RV ownership. Wow. In 20 years. I mean, that's just to have any business or any industry grow that much is fascinating. And so we've talked in, and met with a number of other uh, RV manufacturers and their production lines have had to expand by 80 to a hundred percent capacity. Mm-hmm. It's wild. So this is something, and I think you've touched on something I think the church has to really wrestle with that we have to think about in ministry is just this, this new lifestyle that a lot of people are living. There's a lot of travel. There's, you know, like you mentioned, I read some statistic that there's literally hundreds of millions of square feet of office space. is just abandoned and empty in cities. Uh, that that sort of established, you know, living in the same community for the next 50 years, the same job for the next 50 years. I mean, that generation is passing, right? This new newer generations that want to experience things. We want to travel. We want to see the world. We want to, you know, have flexibility and freedom. A lot of entrepreneurs starting up. So it's like, how does the church then minister to people that aren't always in a fixed place, a fixed location? Uh, even, even the stats on church attendance, you know, uh, it used to be, I don't know, three times a month was a regular attender. Well, that keeps dropping, you know, <laughs> two times a month, once a month. And so you have not only a group of people you're reaching that I think a lot of people don't know how to reach, but then you have a certain methodology because you've got to change up your strategy and tactics if you're going to reach people like this. So I want to go into that now a little <laughs> bit. How do you do this, right? How do you how do you connect with people that are always on the move. And so let's just kind of walk this through, give kind of like an example uh, here. I live in Indianapolis. There's a state park, maybe 45 minutes away, Turkey Run State Park. And walk me through, if your family was to come into Turkey Run State Park over the next couple of weeks, what do you do, man? How do you set up? How do you get to meet people? What's the process look like? Unpack that Yeah, I mean, I will say this, uh, each chapter has basically started a little different, but the one component that keeps our process simple is is friendship first, right? Relationships matter. And so 
uh, we, we just want to be friends with people and being able to, to walk over, shake a hand, introduce yourself uh, and then have an invitation to experience something together, something that you're already there to experience. I would say most people, when they're going to camp for the weekend, they're escaping reality, right? They're, they're looking to get away from their current life uh, to go experience nature. And then, and then on the other spectrum, right, when you have full timers, they're looking to connect with people because they're looking for some sort of community. And so I, I would say that our out of friendship, uh, as the kind of the initial point, our outreach begins and always ends around food, faith, fire, and fellowship. Oh, Pastor like said, said to have all the F's there, but, um, but because this lifestyle has a very concentrated time with other, time tends to move super fast. Um, and, and one of the things that we talk about in the full-time RV world is that when, no, when, you've, knowing, when you've known someone uh, or another nomad for about three weeks, it's close to knowing someone in your current neighbor for over a year. Because oh, yeah. life is so concentrated. Um, and so all of that, all that being said, when, when we can sense someone having a call on their life uh, to serve it as, as a disciple, we invite and we invite them to take uh, like our free training process. And that generally takes four to six weeks. So if they if they are interested in launching a chapter or being a part of the ministry, that's where the conversation over the course of time leads to. And sometimes it's at multiple parks, right? It's, it's staying connected over Zoom, um, doing meetings and stuff like that, or uh, just staying connected. But even just during that time, we talk heavily about those three main scriptures I talked about. Uh, we really hone in their call to follow Jesus and make disciples. And then what they get during and after becoming a chapter is that ongoing coaching, accountability, community uh, support, and then even a way to fundraise financial support if they choose that route. And so so really the process from start to finish, and, and we've had a number of these happen, um, it's just around friendship. It, it's very similar to the model and the method of, of what Jesus and his disciples did. And so we're not we're not doing anything crazy. We're not doing anything obscure. It really is just that simple method of, hey, be friends with someone and invite them into seeing what Jesus is doing in your life. Yeah. So this kind of reminded me a little bit of the Luke 10 story, you know, sending out the 70, yeah. trying to find the people of peace. You know, yeah. where are they at? Uh, the campers of peace, the RVers of peace. And when you find one, I'm assuming then you hang with them. Right. Yeah. And you start to build that friendship, that relationship. Um. What are some things you like look for in terms of openness? Like you said, an openness to being a disciple maker or that kind of thing. Like, are you trying to sort of find strategically people that you can then seed into different RV parks and train long after you leave? What are some characteristics you're looking for in, in those kind of people? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing for us, you know, we use the word in ministry or even in just uh, in business is sustainability. Like if, if it's not going to be sustainable, uh, then we're just having a good time and just kind of living life for Jesus. Uh, but because we want people to continue to make disciples and serve people, there is that question of like, is this a person or is this individual or family the right people uh, to continue in that? And there's plenty of the plenty of people that we've met that say, hey, I love what you're doing and we like to do something similar, but it's not my call. Right. It's not I, I wouldn't want to do this every week. I like to attend those things. And as we know, in church, right, there are people that are called. We have lots of uh, ways that people serve. In different capacities. So we are, we're looking for, for a couple of different factors. Number one, are you relational? Uh, number two, do you, do you know the Bible? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And sometimes those things aren't mutually exclusive. Like we want to make sure that you have a relationship with Jesus and we want to make sure you know the Bible, but for some people, it's just one or the other. And so how do we bridge that gap? Hey, you know, Jesus and you, and you love Jesus, but you don't really know scripture. So let's get you into a process where you can really learn and study scripture. And that begins with coaching and the process. 
And then the other part is some people really know scripture, but they're not walking in relationship. So they don't have a lot of bold faith. They're not looking to evangelize and disciple. They're not interested in those components because they're because they're consuming that knowledge. But how do we then take that and say, hey, we're going to give you some skill sets to go out and share that. And so it's kind of one or the other there. And sometimes people have both and that makes things really easy. But that's kind of our our strategy, if you will. I got you, yeah. which, which makes a ton of sense because you are going around kind of hitting these different campgrounds and communities. And essentially you're, you're sort of casting a wide net to say, Lord, is there anybody in this community that's a bit more established that we could raise up to then launch a chapter long after we're gone? Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. 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 Which is fascinating and such a different model than I think we often think about with church planning. You know, a lot of times we think in church planning, Hey, Shane, you got to go in and you've got to start the chapter. You have to be there for the next two or three years. You have to hang in the RV community with your family to get this thing off the ground. But what you're saying is, no, my job is to be a catalyst. My job is to come in and find the right people, pour into them, disciple them, and then network them around the country because they're the ones that are going to be there long after you leave. Is that right? Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. So give me kind of a flesh and blood story, man. Give me some <laughs> something that you've seen, you know, have real traction, maybe a, a testimony or something about this ministry. Like what what's a success story of what it's looked like from beginning to end? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say this. I, I know that we have like six more hours of this podcast, so there's plenty of stories to fill that. But <laughs> right on. You know, no, there's I mean, I'll say this. There's two stories that uh one is just really close and near and dear to my heart because we became friends with these people. Uh, we stay connected. We talk all the time. We've got travel plans with them. And so I don't, I want to share two stories if that's okay. Um, but, but specifically in March of this year, we pulled into this campground where we met three families who they've already been traveling together for the last year. And, and so we pulled in, uh, we had kind of pulled in into the mix of these three campers that were already right connected with each other. And, uh, and the first conversation goes pretty much like this. Hey neighbor, we have fire about seven o'clock tonight. Come on over. And I, I and I was like, what? Usually I'm the one inviting. And so uh, that was the beginning of, of what I didn't realize is going to be some really close and great friendship. And so about uh, about two weeks together, uh, we decided to extend another week. And during that time of just three weeks with these three families, we had over five Bible studies. Uh, we had kids ministry outreach, um, and none of them are are, are Jesus followers. We kind of had some conversations about church, but not any of them are walking with Jesus. And so a few days later, uh, this entire family um, had basically I had asked them, I was like, have you ever just said yes to Jesus and wanted just to live for him? Like, have you ever said that? And they were like, well, no, I, not necessarily, because I don't know what that means. I, I've read some things in the Bible. I don't currently own one. And so I gave them a Bible. I gave them a devotional. They had kind of gone through it for a couple of days. And anyway, um, that at that at, at the end of that conversation, essentially, uh, the entire family had said yes to Jesus. Um, they got baptized the next day. And uh, and that was in March again, this uh, later this year and earlier this year. And just a few weeks ago, um, the husband of that family officiated his first wedding. Um, oh. He's strengthening their family's relationship with Jesus. They go through uh, their daily devotions all the time. Um, and he and he talks, he calls me and just talks about ways God is moving. And and I know at some point they're probably going to have a desire to be a chapter for in Gathering of Nomads. But but just that conversation, the fact that we met in March and we've and we've only been able to meet up like two or three more times on the road has been fascinating. And uh, and they were someone that would just never walk into a church. 
they had some church hurt stories uh, from some parents. And unfortunately, that just meant for them, like they're never going to go to church again. And so, so anyway, so that family is one of them. Um, and we love that family. I, I won't share their names, uh, just for some of that, some of the, the privacy there, yeah. but then, uh, fast forward to May of this year, um, kind of a similar scenario. We actually met this whole nother traveling group. Um, and this time we ended up spending six weeks with this group. We had three weeks in one location, uh, in Tennessee specifically, and then moved up to Kentucky and we were hosting countless Bible studies. They love Jesus and they were talking to their kids about Jesus a lot. They'd all been part of a church. Um, before they went on the road. And so uh, so we led some kids ministry games. We had dinners. We broke bread. We prayed reconciliation over marriages, uh, prayed against general generational curses. Um, we experienced some awesome restorations and friendships and relationships just in that group. And then toward the end of our time together, one of the families had expressed a ton of interest in serving and living on mission as they travel. And today, it's it's it, again, it can't bring me enough joy, but they are one of the chapters and they are embracing living boldly for Christ. Right. They had a lot of knowledge, but they didn't have a lot of bold faith. And so as they got to experience the constant prayer, like just when someone said, hey, I think my one of my kids are getting sick. And then, you know, 20 of us would get around and pray for that kid like they had never done that before. Hmm. And so then being able just to experience some of the bold faith nature really inspired them and said, hey, we just want to do that. I don't know what that means, but we want to do that. And so they went through their training process and uh, had some great conversations and and they continue to do ministry and outreach on the road. And it's, again, those are, I've got a thousand more, but just yeah. those two specifically uh, really hit home. Yeah. Praise God, man. That's, that's just super incredible and, and praise God for his faithfulness and what he's doing in people's lives and reaching people that others aren't. Um, and, you know, and even when you were sharing that, I, I think back to my time when I was in, you know, junior high, high school, even college, uh, those camp experiences, like you're you're with each other for about a week. It's like you said, community is kind of microwaved in a way. You get to mm. know people. I, don't, I remember what you said earlier about, you know, it takes you a year and a half to get to know your neighbor. You can do the same thing in about a week, you know, on the camp campsite. And and we all know like the power of just sitting around the campfire and talking like it. Yeah. It kind of removes barriers and allows people to open up. So uh, such a great opportunity for ministry. Uh, so, so right now you've been doing this for just how long has it been now, Shane? We technically launched in January. It's it's currently November, so we're we're about ten to eleven months into this. Okay, so <laughs> ten to eleven months in, uh, had a little bit of a an on ramp of just trying to probably get your family settled in this new lifestyle and things like that. How many chapters have have sort of been seeded, so to speak, that are that are starting to germinate a little bit. And then tell me what your prayer is for the future. Yeah, well, we've got uh, we've got eight current chapters that are what we call established chapters uh, now, out, again, living as missionaries um, to the RV world. And then we've got uh, one currently in training and about four others in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And so what we call the pipeline. We just talk about we've had a conversation. People are interested and we, we, we make sure that they have plenty of time to pray and think about it. And so I don't want to say that we're at 13, uh, whatever the math is there, but yeah. but it's constantly growing and there's lots of interest and there's lots of partnerships because we're not focused on making chapters because that's not our end goal. Uh, Matthew 6.33 says to seek first the kingdom. So if I'm seeking first our our ideas and our visions and our mission, um, we're not we're not seeking the kingdom. And so that's kind of always the byproduct. We might get some chapters, but let's focus on the kingdom. Hmm. And so um, and so that's kind of that. And then um 
you know, can I can I share a little bit of just some kind of our vision? Some of the I would love dreams? to. Yeah, I'd love to. And by the way, even as you're sharing this, we're going to put in the show notes, Shane, and you'll be able to access this uh, kind of websites, you know, where to go to get more information, even if they wanted to uh, to serve in some capacity. But yeah, man, tell us yeah, a little bit about vision for the future, where you see this all going. Yeah, you know, I'll say this: be, be, we're really uh, because we we have only one real um, core value, if you want to call it that, is simplicity. Mm-hmm. We just want to keep things simple because simple things are easy to replicate, right? And and because we want to multiply and replicate the behavior of making disciples uh, and loving people to be on mission, um, we we do a lot in our training. But our vision for each chapter, and they write this into their vision. It's the only coaching process that we have in their vision writing. Um, is that we want to have them focus on helping launch one to two nomadic chapters Mm. to help advance the gospel in the full-time RV community. Like if that can happen, then we know that replication is always on the forefront of their mind. And and we also want to see more churches adopt local campgrounds. Um, You know, the one thing I, we talk a lot about with different churches, you know, we're, because we're a missionary group, a lot of times we come in and we're having conversations about finances. We need financial support. Um, Each chapter needs financial support. Um, But one of the things that we love to talk to churches about is, hey, there's a campground down the street. Would you consider making that a campus for you? Like just adopt it and use it as a training grounds for the next upcoming pastors or leaders and disciple makers. Like it's not number one, it's free. They they usually have buildings and locations. They're probably not going to charge you anything because you're offering something to their guests. And so being able just to walk in and say, hey, I want to adopt a campground. There's a learning curve and we're part of that process to help churches kind of learn the RV world. Uh, but we want to see more churches say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to adopt this campground right down the street. And what's great is you don't have to do a church service on a Sunday. You could do a church service on a Friday if you needed to, because <laughs> uh, Sunday is a big travel day for a lot of RVers. Um, we also want to see, um, you know, we've got a, a, an app that we're currently launching. Um, and just in, this app itself, uh, it's it's going to serve as our hub, net, our hub for networking, finding other nomads and helping find churches that are good resources and services for nomads. Um, that app is beyond the developing stage now. It's uh, it's actually being coded and written now uh, and should be live uh, in January 2024. So really looking forward to that. Uh, and the biggest thing, John, and to say this to any any listeners right now is, hey, when you see an RVer driving on the road, just take a minute and pray for them. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like traveling oftentimes is not that glamorous. It's stressful. And so being able just to pray for RVers um, is a huge deal. And the fact that there's just a heart for these people that are out on the road um, experiencing life and a lot of God's creation. And our hope would be um, by by 2026, we want to see 50 chapters. Uh, yeah. We want to see different branches of this take off. Um, it's beyond the word sustainable. It's so simple um, and it can grow at a rapid rate because it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take a lot of building, right? It doesn't have a lot of resources that we need. It's just a little finances and a lot of bold faith. Wow, man. That's awesome. There's some, some gold in that last couple of paragraphs you said, because I think these are some next steps for people that are listening. And I just want to say to you, man, I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate your faith to step out and do this uh, kind of full time with your family. I know there's a whole lot of other stressors we didn't talk about even on this podcast that go along with this kind of ministry. Uh, So I appreciate your time, man. And just to recap uh, what Shane said for, for those of you that are listening, if you are a pastor or if you're a lay leader at a local church, and you have a campground nearby, I would encourage you to get in touch with Gathering of Nomads. You'll see the website there uh, in the show notes. Also, 
Uh, if you would like to give, uh, this is a ministry that requires full-time support. Uh, you don't pass the offering plates around the campfire typically. And so right. please consider that. Consider a gift to, to Shane and his family. Also, uh, even to the growing nomadic community and chapter leaders around the country. And then kind of the last thing is be looking for that app because I think that app is going to help uh, each of you know how to connect more and see areas of opportunity um, where they exist. So some great stuff there at the end, Shane, man. Any any final words before we wrap up? I would just say, you know, meditate. If anybody has a chance, like go meditate on those three scriptures for a week and see what God says to you. You know, there there's there's something really beneficial about spending time with your creator and asking God to give you a tremendous amount of vision that's his and not yours. And so being able to sit with those three scriptures, Acts 1, 8, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, and Matthew 6, 33, they're just phenomenal scriptures that all bleed into each other to understand what you've been gifted to do. Um, and it gives you a lot of encouragement to know you're not the only one doing it. Yeah, man. Praise God. All right. Thanks, Shane. We're praying for Thank you. Thank you. Bless, brother. We'll see you. Paul Watson. Paul's the founder of Contagious Disciple Making and director of the Freedom Initiative an innovative approach to prison ministry that's training those who are incarcerated to become disciple makers. And so Paul was also invited to our Shark Tank event in Raleigh, North Carolina. Really looking forward to the conversation. So Paul, welcome to the show, man. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks to have me, John. I appreciate it. So Paul, we first met back in Texas. We've known each other a little while. A uh, you probably remember uh, the day you, you attended our church, we were planting a church at the time. Uh, I was a very green church planner. And I remember when you and your family walked in that first Sunday and getting to know you. And I got to be honest, from the time I met you, man, I was just fascinated with your approach to ministry. Uh, you challenged a lot of things that we were doing at the time. And I just remember going home and saying to my wife, Katie, I don't know who Paul is, but something about him really fascinates me. So you do have a fascinating story, man. You've got a lot in your background. Give us a little bit about just kind of your background in ministry and how you grew up. Sure, sure. Uh, my my family uh, was a church planning family in the United States. Uh, my mom is a graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. My dad's a graduate of Southwestern. They planted five churches together in the U.S., two of which were deaf congregations. Uh, before they were called to go overseas with what was then known as the Foreign Mission Board, now as the International Mission Board. And uh, back in, let's see, 1985 is when they were actually called. And so we were called to go to Malaysia to work with the Chinese-speaking Malaysians because it was illegal to work with the Muslim Malaysians at that time. And so after a brief uh, rest in Hong Kong, trying to learn some Cantonese as fast as we could, we landed in Malaysia. And my dad became a pastor of an English-speaking Chinese church in Pataling Jaya, uh, Malaysia, just out of the capital, outside the capital city of Kuala Lumpur. And, and there, you know, there, John, there's two kinds of missionaries out there. I hate to say it. There's the kind of missionaries that hang out with other missionaries all the time. And there's the kind right. of missionaries that hang out with like the local people. And my parents love local people. And so I grew up in a house where people of all different kinds and shapes and backgrounds were coming in and out all the time and my mom and dad you know they just made friends with everyone and as a result um muslim malaysians who they made friends with began to ask questions that they didn't feel safe asking anywhere else 
And over the course of the next few years, uh, my parents ended up winning many of those families to Christ and starting 15 underground churches uh, with those Muslim background believers, which is amazing for a first term missionary on the field. And it was going really, really well until the government found out about it. And then they declared martial law. They arrested those pastors, some of which they beat so badly that they lost kidney function. And they put my family under house arrest. So I like to tell people that my parents got me arrested for the first time at the age of 10. (laughs) And uh, ultimately, by the time I was 11, I would receive my first official label as a political undesirable. And with my mom and my younger brother, we were expelled from Malaysia. And uh, we had to figure out what we were going to do next. And The Malaysian church grew during that time, as the church often does under times of persecution. But we knew that if we were still there, we would cause unnecessary governmental attention upon the body of Christ. And so we were praying and we said, Lord, what do you want us to do? And about that time, a guy named David Garrison, uh, who is the author of, of several books now, uh, reached out. You know, they were all in their 30s, my mom, my dad and Uncle, Ga- Uncle David. And uh, he said, hey, I'm starting this new program called the Non-Resident Missionary Program, and uh, where we assign missionaries now to people groups, specifically unreached people groups, which is any people group that has where less than 2% of the population has ever had a chance to hear about Christ in any way, any shape, any form, any fashion. And so my parents are like, okay, well, um, this sounds great. What do you want us, where do you want us to go? And they say, we want you to go to India. My parents are like, we don't want to go to India. We know Cantonese. We don't know Hindi. Why do you want to send us to India? And they said, because no one else will go. Mm, yeah. So my parents prayed about it, and they felt the Lord lead them that direction. And they were assigned the Bhojpuri People Group of Northern India. 180 million people in an area the size of Montana with less than 1,000 believers and only 27 churches, known as the, as the birthplace of Buddhism, the birthplace of Jainism, the birthplace of Hinduism. It's where Mahatma Gandhi went to start the student revolution that resulted in India's independence. And it's also known as the graveyard of missions and missionaries. So we, in, in early 1990, move, actually 1990 itself, moved down to India, ultimately started in Bangalore, shifted up to to New Delhi. And my dad spent time going into the states of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, just trying to figure out how do I do a job that no one's ever done before. And he found six Indian nationals who could speak the language and, and he trained and poured his life into them like he had many times before. And they went out into the villages and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ and they'd either be received or they would be beaten and thrown out. And people said, hey, you're going to get killed doing this. And my dad's like, well, I don't know any other way to do it. Do you, if you know, do you tell me? And no one had any other suggestions. Well, about that time, the U.S. got involved in the Gulf War. And in protest to U.S. involvement in the Gulf War, my family found ourselves expelled from our second country, this time not because we were Christians, but because we were Americans. And we ended up setting up shop in Singapore, the only country where we could get a visa at the time to live. And my dad closed things down in India, joined us in Singapore, and was like, how in the world do I do ministry when I can't live in the same country? Because this is totally different approach to missions than had ever been considered before. And to make matters worse, he would found out that all six of those men he trained were martyred. And so then he began to go before the Lord. He says, Lord, I mean, I'm good at what I do. I've been trained really well. But my experience and my training are not adequate to do the job that you've called me to do. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to read books on church planting. I'm not going to read books on missions. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read your word because I can't believe that you want multiple generations of Bhojpuri to die out before they have a chance to hear about you even one time. So you're going to have to show me what you want to do. And he began to read the Bible. I remember sitting next to him as a 12-year-old kid, hit his Bible and a stack of highlighters. I actually got a chance to go visit him just recently and got a chance to flip through that Bible and see a lot of those initial notes. And God began to show him things that until he was desperate, he couldn't see because he was reading the gospel through the lens of his denomination and of his nation, his background as an American. But when desperation forced him to remove those lenses, he began to see some new things that were hidden in plain sight all along. He put them together in a plan to go and to reach the Bhojpuri. He presented his ideas at a conference, a secret conference on Hindu evangelism, and everyone laughed at him. And by the second day, there was only one person left at the conference. Mm-hmm. Wow. And he came up to my dad and he said, I think you're on to something and I want to work with you. My dad failed his way forward working with this guy for the next two years. He nearly got fired from the International Mission Board twice during that time and uh, for not producing. And he said, hey, we're trying something new. Be patient with me. But at the end of two years, they started five underground Bhojpuri churches, all started by Bhojpuri leaders, led by Bhojpuri. Not a single one of them were paid. They were all farmers because we wanted to avoid any appearances we were paying anyone to convert. And uh, to make a long story short, over the next 18 years, those five churches went to 80,000 churches, and we went to over 2 million baptisms. And my dad and David Garrison and several others during that time were in a room trying to figure out what do we call this thing that God is doing? And they came up with a term that you've probably heard called church planting movements. Fast forward decades later, after God had already called me into ministry, and I've been all over the world, um, they decided to use a different term that better described our role and what God was doing. And uh, we all decided together that the term disciple making movements was the best term. So that was my background in ministry, man. I came back. I came back to the U.S. Uh, I when it was when I was 18, I graduated from Singapore American School. I decided I was going to try to be a, a, a minister. I was a youth minister for a year and 11 days. It didn't work. And uh, <laughs> that just was I was a horrible youth minister. And uh, and so I got out of that. And then dad called me back in on a project he needed help on. And God used that to bring me in the ministry. And then I spent the next those years that you met me, I was traveling about uh, 15 days out of every month, 200,000 miles a year all over the world, raising up disciple making teams to do the things in various countries that uh, that my dad had done. And so you've seen several books have been written about all the work of my father and how it's been applied in different places from Kingdom Unleashed by Jerry Trousdale, Miraculous Movements by Jerry Trousdale, uh, movements, uh, let's see, the church planting movements by David Garrison, and of course, the book that dad and I wrote called Contagious Disciple Making. Yeah. In the middle of all of that, God threw me a curveball, and he said, hey, I want you to run a homeless shelter and recovery center in Portland, Oregon. And I was like, what are you talking about, Lord? And uh, so I said, I mean, I prayed about it, and uh, and we said yes to that. We came up here, and I ran that for three and a half years And God used that experience to teach me incredible compassion and give me understanding for people who are coming out of incarceration, for people who are caught in addiction, for people who are living on the streets. Uh, Something that I 
had intellectually but didn't have in my heart until you're there hugging a homeless person and for the first time or asking them a question and have them weep because no one's ever asked their opinion before. And in the middle of that, I was riding the train to work because my Ford pickup truck broke down because that's what Ford pickups trucks do. And, uh, and God sat there and said to me, he says, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he's, I'm on my way to work. And he said, uh, he says, no, seriously, what are you doing? I said, well, God, I don't understand the question. And he said, I've taught you to reach the hardest to reach peoples on this planet. Why aren't you using what I taught you to, to do to reach the hardest to reach peoples right here in the United States and Canada? And by that, I knew that he wasn't just referring to refugees or immigrants, although they were definitely included in that, but he meant anyone that wouldn't go into the doors of the church to find the answers to their deepest questions. And that was about the time that dad and I wrote the book. I started an organization by the same name because I wanted to be a part of what God was doing to see disciple making movements happen right here in the United States. And I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach instead of seeing the church as an obstacle to disciple making as an obstacle to movement. I felt the Lord tell me that he wanted me to sit there and see the church as hubs for disciple making movements as equipping centers for disciple makers that would then go into every silo, every population segment, every ethnic linguistic group throughout the United States. And so we began doing that, man. And it's been a fun journey because what we do is we meet the people of God where he's planted them, and then we help them become disciple makers there and surround them with the community they need to do it and hopefully bring their church along in the process. And so I find people working in all sorts of places. Most of our work is the US and Canada, but I'm also working, continue to work with people overseas. And from that, came out the Freedom Initiative, because I got contacted by this chaplain there in at a maximum security prison in Amarillo, Texas, who said, hey, I want to do this in the prison. And I was like, well, hey, let's figure <laughs> out how this works. And the beautiful thing, John, is God was so gracious to us. He taught us so many things that right before COVID, we had over uh, 37 Discovery Bible studies that had gone five generations deep, over 300 men we're reading the Bible together in the in the cells and in the yards throughout the entire prison before COVID happened and shut it down. And that was the birthplace of what uh, the Freedom Initiative was, is how do we begin to disciple guys in prison and then help them through as if they were the body of Christ, because they are. How do we treat them as members of the body of Christ coming out? help them get on their feet, reintegrate and reenter into society, but continue on with a life of purpose, a purpose defined by the great commission and great commandment, the same purpose given to you and to me to go and make disciples and thereby transform their families, their communities and their nation. That's that's what it was. And because I believe this, that the opposite of addiction and incarceration, what will keep you from going back in is purpose. Do you have a purpose that's bigger than the American dream? The opposite of addiction is is community. Do you have a community that you belong to and are connected to? Well, that just sounds like the body of Christ to me. So let's get these guys out. Let's get them what they need. Let's get them plugged in and let's help them have purpose and help the church realize that they're not a threat, but they're an asset. 
they're someone that can help further the cause of Christ. And yeah. so that's that's that background, brother. I know that's a lot, but that's that's why why I'm here today. And oh, that's and, great. And everything. I mean, you gave us the whole enchilada. That's great. I, the, a lot of the questions I was going to ask you, you already already answered them. And I think, you know, what I discovered early on when I first met you, as I heard some of these stories, I just remember thinking to myself, that camp. Thing. There's no way. Right. right. Thousand churches, millions of people baptized. Right. And now you can go back and say, no, that that is what happened. I mean, God used your family, your dad, um, that ministry in a mighty way. And whenever you share that story, and even as you were telling it, I just thought, gosh, the formative years of your life as you are growing up, you're experiencing this, you're witnessing it, you're seeing the obedience in action. And as that's forming you, it's shaping you like it's no yeah. wonder when you came back to be a youth pastor in a traditional church ministry. It's like there's a disconnect here. And and I think I think one of the things that that I'm realizing even now as our culture is changing and things are shifting and uh, a lot of ministry models are, are starting to change. I hear the phrase discovery Bible study everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. telling you everywhere. Established churches, parachurch, house church, microchurch, right. everybody's talking about Discovery Bible Study. And what you're saying is that was a process that came after literally months of just pouring over the book of Acts to figure out how can we connect and reach this group of people in northern India. But the principles translate, right, all across yeah. the world. And and I was uh I was talking with someone you probably know, Curtis Sargent. He's uh, also was oh, a yeah. Missionary. I used I used to babysit his kids when I was in high school. <laughs> right, right on. So and and uh, he was saying, you know, they said that this couldn't work in Muslim cultures, and it worked. And they said it couldn't work in Buddhist cultures, and it worked. And honestly, what they say now, and what I hear a lot now, is it can't work in post-Christian culture. This model cannot work in North America, in the West, in post-Christian culture. And your answer to that would be what? Like, what, what are you thinking as that question comes up? Because I hear that a lot, and I think it's the nut that everyone's trying to crack. Like, does this concept work, quote-unquote work, right, uh, in the West? And you started an entire ministry contagious disciple making built around these principles. So right. walk me through, man, before we get into some freedom initiative stuff, what's working? What are some of these challenges that through prayer and fasting things need to be broken down? Like just, man, you're on the ground, you're doing it. Yeah. What, what are you seeing? Give us kind of a first person thought on this. Yeah. So when I, when I started the ministry, people, you know, were like, what are you doing? I mean, are you serious? And they, and they would ask me that question. What if you fail? You guys know this, the, you're trying to raise money in order to launch this new initiative. It doesn't matter whether it's a new church plan or not. Some bozos out there is going to look at you and say, well, what if it doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, it, and we've all had it. And so I looked at them and I just said this, I said, so what's the worst that can happen? Cause I think about this. I always think what's the worst that can happen. The worst that can happen is I mobilize people to pray for the United States. And I taught the body of Christ to pray for the United States. I taught the body of Christ to read the Bible 
with the intent to obey it and transform their family and their community. I taught them how to talk to lost people again and begin to build friendships, not just friendships where they're like, oh, you're a cool dude, but oh, something's different about you. And I, and I, and I want that as well. You know, we started talking to churches about how to help their people get instead of hiding from the world, getting back into all the different places and spaces of the world. I helped the body of Christ knew that they should be advocating for, um, for pro-life situations and advocating for the, the, the care of the poor and the homeless and the helpless and the incarcerated and all that. What's the worst that can happen? I said, man, if the worst that happens is I do all of that and some people come to know Jesus and are baptized, at least I've got the best of what we have to offer in the United States right now. Yeah, yeah. But then I sit there and I go, well, what's the best that can happen? Well, the best that can happen is we could see a movement. Yeah. The best that can happen is I can see my country become what God intended my country to be. The best that can happen is I would see kids who know who they are in Jesus Christ and don't have to go random places searching for a different identity. I can see homelessness that's solved not by legislation and hiding the problem but by people actually feeding them and them being restored and their knees met and demons being driven out when demons need to be driven out and mental health given help given when they when mental health is needed but i see a church that is living that is active that is a integral part of society if that is the best that can happen wouldn't it be wouldn't it be worth laying all the chips on the table wouldn't it be worth saying i would rather die pursuing that kind of dream than than anything else on the planet Hmm. because if anything that has taught me i grew up all over the world and i appreciate all the cultures yeah but i've seen the united states from the eyes of an insider and the eyes of an outsider and i love my country and i and i and i love canada because i've got family that's canadian And, and i'm just like look the best, most patriotic thing I can do the, the, is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done in the United States and Canada as it is in heaven. If that's the worst that can happen, then I would rather risk everything to see it happen. I mean, and you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned as you were sharing your story that a lot of people don't see, but is really a pivotal piece of that story is, you know, you see the 80,000 churches, you see the millions of people baptized, but but what you said was when he presented that, everybody laughed. Everybody left. You had one person, one native, you know, to India say, hey, I'm all in. But then it was a just resilience that had to be cultivated. There was some perseverance that had to, had to happen. There was a sense of like faithfulness to the mission. And I do think that this the approach of empowering disciple makers through kind of your approach with contagious disciple making and discovery Bible studies and things like that. It is a long game effort and it takes resilience and it takes commitment. And I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers that I'm seeing is just that, Hey, we want results quickly and we're not seeing that. It's like, this is a long game, right? This is, this is something built on principles of scripture that require right prayer fast and one of the problems that we see here though is that people don't know how to communicate uh in the middle of the long game and so i think in 10-year chunks i'm a strategist and i know i look at ministry and i do things very different and some people are like wow that's that's not even at all how i think and that's okay and i say that's okay that's how god wired me so i think in 10-year chunks 
I do. And I go, if I'm committed to do ministry in an area, it's a minimum of 10 years or more to help to navigate the changes necessary in behavior and action in order to see the transformation that we're wanting to see. And so uh, one of the things that you have to learn when you're communicating and thinking that long term is how do I communicate micro wins? It was interesting. I was watching the Super Bowl one year, the year the, Se the Seahawks won. And, uh, and I was sitting there watching the Super Bowl and I was talking to the Lord because I do that. It's random. Sometimes he just starts to sit there and he says, so, Paul, how do you win the Super Bowl? I was like you get touchdowns i i'm sorry it's, i find this yeah, god right, doing this all the right. time i look at god i'm like i don't understand the question god and he says you're wrong he says you 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 win the super bowl by getting the most first downs and he says the super bowl in fact the whole season of football is won by first downs the team that gets the most first downs gets the opportunity to make a touchdown or a field goal or a two-point conversion all those kind of things they, they get the opportunity to score and he says, you need to help the disciple makers in the middle of the Super Bowl run that's going to take 10 years. You need to help disciple makers know what the first down win is, because if you've got a guy who's working 60 hours a week uh, in, an, in an economy like the one we have right now, that's just trying to put food on the table. But he's saying, I want to be obedient to the Great Commission. How does that man know that at the end of his really hard day that the 30 minutes he had at lunch helped move the ball further down the field? And then how does everyone and then the other thing he told me, he said, Paul, in the Super Bowl, anyone that touches the ball gets a ring. You know, the team gets the the team gets a ring. And he said, so how do you build a, a process or a system where if the man who touched the ball for 30 minutes and the one who was full time both get the get the win and they know that they're equal in the eyes of God. David did this. He sat there and he took people to go out and to rescue all the things that had been stolen by marauders. And he had to leave some of the guys behind to watch the stuff while he took the warriors out and they ended up, but the God gave him the victory that day. But then people were like, well, don't give the guys who stayed behind any of the spoils because they don't deserve it. And King David established a statute in Israel that day saying that they would all share equally. Mm -hmm. And so I sat there and I was like, okay, I, then how do I construct a process by which that man who spent the, the 30 minutes touching the ball faithfully has just as much authority and influence based upon faithfulness, obedience, and fruit as the one who spends his full-time job doing it? And how do we celebrate that all equally? And so by creating a culture of celebration, of giving God the honor and glory due his name, and, and, and then celebrating and encouraging what people have done, and showing them how little baby steps get them closer to the 10-year vision, and telling stories, that's how we made it happen. Yeah, yeah. So in many ways, as you think about you know the broader ministry of contagious disciple-making, it's, it's how can we train and empower more disciple makers here in the States based on a lot of the principles that really are universal <clears throat> across the world, but really thinking about <clears throat> this particular mission field. And I know you have a lot of national influence, you're connected all over North America, but one area that you've really, I would say even recently focused in on is this opportunity in prisons across the country. Uh, I think the latest statistic I heard, and you can kind of confirm this, was somewhere around 2 million people that are incarcerated in the United States, which is just 
crazy to me, but there are yeah. two, 2 million people. And so many prison ministries uh, are typically evangelistic in nature, I would say. There's kind of this idea of, you know, we come into the prison, we share the gospel, and then, uh, you know, we leave. And your ministry and the Freedom Initiative, this aspect of contagious disciple making says we're taking a different approach. Yeah. We want to identify people that we can train to be disciple makers in the prison. So tell me, just give me kind of the two, three minute, like if you were to describe Freedom Initiative to somebody, uh, what does that process look like? Walk us through. Absolutely. So the the perspective here is the people are the solution. You know, we always try to look for these A-listers to do everything. And then yet when I read the gospels, Jesus rarely ever chose A-listers. He looked at the people in front of them and he equipped them to reach the people, whether it was the woman at the well um, or, you know, all of these different people. He sat there and he healed and they, and they told the story and he spent time with them and he invested his life in them. And so I sat there instead of saying that, OK, prisoners are a problem that need to be fixed with the gospel when they come to know Jesus and they won't be a problem anymore. Hmm. I said, what if prisoners were the solution? to the problem in the United of incarceration in the United States. And so, and, and John, you're right, 2 million people are so um, incarcerated, but if you add in their families and all the communities that are touched by incarceration, we estimate that in the Freedom Initiative as over 10 million people in the United States wow. affected by incarceration. And that doesn't include people that live in communities that are crime-ridden, where they have to worry about double locking or triple locking their doors every night. Like the kill zone in Cal in California, where a buddy of mine comes home and uh, he finds two guys shooting it out in the cul-de-sac in the kill zone. He's like, what's up? I got kids right there. And they're like, oh, sorry, boss. And they put their guns up and they walk away. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing. Some neighborhoods are like that in the United States. And so and so how do we begin to do that? And so we went in and we said, OK, God has already put prisoners in this context that have fallen in love with him. And they happen to be currently incarcerated, but they're just like, what do I do? And so, so let's equip them. It'd be just because they're a prisoner doesn't uh, give them a free pass to not fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. But nobody's seeing it as how do I help them obey the Bible? It's just basically saying, well, obey the parts that you can. And that's it. And I said, no, I'm going to teach you how to obey the Bible within your context. We raise them up to be disciple makers. They go out. And they start the Discovery Bible Study, which is a process my father developed to embed the DNA of church inside of these small groups as they read God's word together from creation to Christ. And so they start these Bible studies, and then others start those Bible studies. And then as they're going through this, they're able to tell who's really a follower of Christ or not, because you can't live with someone 24-7, 365 in, in a prison and, and hide anything. The prisoners right. know those who love Jesus. The prisoners know those who are putting on a show for the volunteers. And so those that disciple-making team now becomes a referral team. They sit there and say, this guy's a real believer. He's the real deal. We, we, we see it. So then they refer him as he's coming out on parole to a group of mentors, two, one that's been incarcerated, one that hasn't, but live on the outside, who then meet them at the gates of the prison and say, and, and start to say, we're here to help. And they begin to guide them through the process of reentry and reintegration. Because when you're talking that you've spent 10, 15, 20, 30 years in prison, coming out from a, from a, a place where they didn't have cell phones when you went in, do they have cell phones now? 
um, and everything to the idea of um, a lot of people uh, don't know about this, but when you come out of prison, you've been used to sleeping with so much noise around you that you have insomnia for the first three months when you come out because there's no noise. Yeah. And so how do you help a prisoner through that so that in desperation of trying to navigate, they don't go back to the old patterns and old habits and old hangouts and old people and, uh, and end up doing the, their old, their old, uh, their old ways. And so we meet them there, we get them there, then we put them in disciple making communities that were very experienced that they, that they did on the inside. So now there's something that grounds them. Oh, this is the same format of something that we did on the inside, except now I'm doing it in a mixed group of people who've been incarcerated and then those that haven't. And then I start to start discovery Bible studies out here. And now a buddy of mine at the disciple making community says, Hey, come to my church. And now when I walk into that church, they're like saying, who brought you here? Oh, the judge brought me here. Oh, the judge, how did you meet so-and-so? Oh, we're in a Bible study together. He starts discovery Bible studies among the lost. And I thought this would be a great place for him to be a, wor- uh, a house of worship. And so now his identity is not, this is a man whose only story is that he was formerly incarcerated. His identity is, this is my friend. We're in a Bible study together. He is a faithful disciple maker who's helping the lost come to know him. And now churches treat them totally different and they see themselves as different. And, and that's what the cause of Christ is all about. Jesus is in the business of changing destinies of people and their families. And we need to start seeing that and understand that he gives us a brand new identity. And I want to be known for my past because that's a testament to God's glory. But I want to be known by my identity in him because that's a testament of the future that I have in Christ as I spread his gospel on this planet. Yeah, so what what you've done then is you've taken what's often the the message of so many prison ministries, which is, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus has come. He's your savior, right? You can have new life in him. You could be a new creation. And you hear that message, that kind of evangelistic call that so many ministries have. But then where do I go from here? Like, what's my purpose from here? How do I live as a disciple of Christ? And the Freedom Initiative trains these inmates to learn how to be disciple makers, have purpose. And I love the stories you've shared with me, even as we were just chatting, you know, a few months ago on just different pods and the movement and what's happening in different prisons. And then as they get out and the ecosystem around disciple making that's happening. And, you know, it reminds me, I was thinking, just kind of preparing for this conversation in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink stranger. You invited me in sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. That's right. And I heard one author talk about uh, people that are pipsy. He says, so the P I P S, you know, it's the poor internationals, prisoners, and sick, and how pipsy people, so to speak, oftentimes bear more fruit when they experience grace in Christ. And here you have this group of people, this 2 million, 10 million impacted by incarceration in the United States, that when when they come alive to Jesus and find purpose in disciple-making, like what an incredible opportunity. And so I just, you know, if if someone's listening, Paul, and they say, man, I've got a prison right down the street, or I'm, I've been touched by this issue. Uh, I would love to tie in with the Freedom Initiative. I don't know what's my next step. Like, Share just real quickly you know, your website, how to get connected into this movement, because I think a lot of people, myself included, 
you know, 20 miles from here, there is a, a state penitentiary with hundreds, perhaps thousands of inmates. And here we have an opportunity in my backyard. I would imagine there's a lot of people listening that have those same opportunities. So how do we get connected into the Freedom Initiative? What would be some possible next steps as we wrap up? Yeah, this is fun. I've got we've got chapters of the Freedom Initiative in Amarillo, Texas, in uh, San Diego, California, and we're opening one in Anchorage, Alaska, right now. And so we've walked. We they're all at various stages of launch, and we would love to be able to to talk with you about putting that process into place. Whether you're an individual or a couple or a ministry or a church, we can begin working with you to put the systems and structures into place over the course of time so that you can have everyone cooperating together. And that's what I love about the Freedom Initiative. It's not one church, it's not one thing, it's an initiative of all of us coming together. If you provide beds, we wanna work with you. If you provide foods, we wanna work with you. If you provide vehicles, we wanna work with you. Whatever it is, if you feel led to go inside the prison, we wanna work with you. And so if you're in that place where you've got a prison or a jail nearby and you're saying, man, I don't know what to do, but I want to have some kind of part to play in the role that God has in mind to redeem the people in that place. Then we want to talk with you about that. And then we're going to help you not only learn the ins and outs of disciple making movements, but how that applies, how to set the systems up, how to build partnerships locally so that we can change the lives of those inside that prison. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So reach out to us. We're at Contagious Disciple Making. You asked me about yep. my website. Sorry, I didn't go into yeah, that. Yeah, no problem. We're at con ContagiousDiscipleMaking.com. Uh, you know, that's the name of the book as well, Contagious Disciple Making. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of those places. We also have an app inside of the Apple Store or, or Android or Amazon. Just search for, once again, Contagious Disciple Making. Download it. At the very top of it, you're going to see a tile right there that says Freedom Initiative. You can click on that, listen to podcasts and stories and testimonies, and see some resources about that as well. And you can actually contact us through that app as well and uh, we would love to be able to talk with you and then to see what is necessary to get this started awesome. and start changing lives yeah and you know what man we'll put all that in the show notes that way you have access to that if you're listening and uh, i just want to say to you man I'm, I'm so uh so thankful we met however many years ago it was 15 20 years ago uh, so thankful to see how god's used you over these last couple of decades and honestly your resilience and passion for making disciples. And I pray, man, all those things you shared earlier in this podcast about the future of our country, our nation, and where God wants to take us, I just pray they come to pass. Uh, thanks for your work, brother. And uh, thank you for listening to the Exponential Next podcast. For more resources on the future of the church, visit exponential.org backslash next.